we are reminded once again of the wonder and the glory of your great power. Power to speak and to create. And then the power you have to sustain and uh, keep us. And the power to overcome death and to overcome the evil one with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Lord, you are a powerful, awesome God. We thank you that you have made us and that we are made in your image. Help us, we pray, to think through the implications of that this day as we ponder your word and ponder what you are calling your people to do and to be and what it means to know you in this world. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. I would imagine that you all, like me, have been rather grieved to hear a story about a 17-year-old girl who escaped from her home in California, having plotted this escape for two years, an escape from a home that was a nightmare in which she and 12 of her siblings were malnourished and were literally chained to their beds. It's my understanding that the parents now are facing charges of torture and child abuse and child endangerment. Now, you hear that story, and I would think that most people, most common sense people, hear that story with a sense of shock and outrage. And my question I want to ask this morning is why? Why is that? Why do we act shocked and a sense of outrage when we hear of that type of treatment toward children? I'm convinced that all of us have this deep sense in which we know it's just not right. <laughs> it is not right to chain people to beds in their own home. No parent, no social agency, no government has the right and authority to treat nonviolent, non-threatening, law-abiding people like animals. Every person has dignity and value. So how is it then that down through history, certain societies, certain times uh, of seasons, there, those kinds of values of people having dignity and value, it's not upheld. It's not something that was enforced. That It's not guaranteed that people during all these years of history have shown that they are to be given dignity and value regardless of their age, their race, or their capabilities. This morning I want to explore just several brief reasons, and I'm just scratching at the surface here, there could be many others, why the elevated view of human dignity that I think we all fundamentally know in our hearts, why that erodes at times and results in the devaluation of certain classes of people and segments of the human race. Then I want to briefly just touch on several insights how the Christian worldview is going to elevate the view of mankind to show that man is worthy of dignity and value and worth in the eyes of God and in all of us. And then I want to provide several gospel applications and uh, incentives as to encourage us to celebrate and to defend the rights and the dignity of all human beings at every stage of life in every place in the world. 
I want to begin by, first of all, thinking of the man-centered view of human worth. And this is obviously where we get into problems when, when man uh, begins to sort of come up with, uh, humans come up with their own estimation of why people should or should not have value. But obviously all of us operate with assumptions and presuppositions that influence how we treat other people. I think about the person of Saul before he became an apostle. He is a person who grew up in an ultra, ultra conservative Jewish home. And during his upbringing and in his training, in his early years, he was taught and he viewed people who were different from him as being people perceived through a lens of worldly standards. You say, what are you talking about? Well, turn in your Bible to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and I just want to touch on this very briefly, but I'm using this as an example of, here is Paul, his heart is filled at one point in his young life with murderous hatred toward people that he viewed as being threats to his religious traditions. And he was not going to take it sitting down. He was a person who was very much involved in having people arrested, having them mistreated and persecuted in various ways. He was, he described his own testimony as a person who was a violent aggressor. He was a person who was a scary guy to be around. He was out of control. And he alludes to these kind of extreme views in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, in which he says, From now on, we recognize no person or no man according to the flesh. And then he's going to move on to what he now has changed and how his viewpoints have changed. But in that brief statement, he's acknowledging that one time he did view people through the interpretive lens of man-centered viewpoint. Even though he's a religious person, his own man-centered approach in his pre-conversion days enabled him to view people primarily through an understanding of an ethnic religious superiority. He considered him to be a part of a race and a part of a group of people who were highly superior to all people around him. His disdain for people of other races was rooted in his belief that only the Jews were worthy of the favor of God, and no one else was. And it led him to, ultimately, I think, a religious, racial bigotry that was horrible at its core. And we see elements of that even in today's world in people who are white supremacists, who are still trumpeting their views of which they think themselves as superior than others around them. Another example of this kind of thinking that contributes to the lowering of the view of man is the pragmatic view. This is fairly common because it's an outlook that defines human worth under this heading of pragmatism in the sense that whatever works for me, then that is must be right. So if it works for me as an individual, then that must be right. But if you use it in a group context, that kind of a, a mindset and philosophy, then you would say it's utilitarianism. And by that we mean the greatest good for the greatest number of people is what's right. The greatest good for the greatest number of people is what should be practiced. 
And this approach, of course, determines the worth or value of a human life based on whether or not a person will bring about some sort of desired consequence for the greatest good of those who obviously are people who hold the power, the reins of money or of government and, uh, and, and authority in political power. So an example of this for, uh, would easily be seen in the biblical story of Exodus 1. We have the leader of Egypt, the Pharaoh, who is enjoying having all these people here in his kingdom because of a famine. The, the Israelites are there. They've traveled down to survive the famine. They're enjoying the beneficial, uh, benefits of the, of, the, of the Nile River, which floods and produces plenty of food in that area. And while they're there, they multiply a great rate and they become a, a numerous, large group of people, a race that lives now among uh, a for, uh, 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 Egypt. And so the Pharaoh thinks to himself, look, these people are a threat. There's so many of them. They could easily overth overthrow us. So what does he do? He mandates that they perform manual labor. And so he enslaves them. And he insists that they must uh, perform more and more difficult manual labor to build whatever projects for him to make his kingdom look all the better his, from his perspective. And what does he do? Even then, he mandates that that wasn't enough. He then mandates that all of the male babies born should be killed after birth. In other words, he mandates infanticide for all male Jewish babies. Now, in the mind of Pharaoh, that made sense for the greater sense of, the, of his people and his kingdom, and therefore he longed for those good results, and uh, therefore that eradicated any kind of dignity for male human Jewish babies. We see the same thing in the New Testament era, did we not, when you got King Herod, Herod the Great, and he sees this threat of some supposed king that's now been born in Bethlehem and so he's looking for all of the details about this becomes so obsessed and so paranoid about some threat that he may have now from someone else who's royalty within his own realm he says what everyone in the vicinity of Bethlehem under the age of two all male babies shall be killed those those lives have no value anymore for the greater good of my kingdom and my people surely we've seen this pattern repeated throughout human history We've seen desperate, impoverished people in order to advance themselves, to find some way of meeting their basic, basic fundamental needs. They become enslaved by other people who are forcing them into manual trade, manual labor. And for years, of course, we saw in the own history of the world this African slave trade that was a thriving business in which Thousands and thousands and millions of lives were put through all sorts of horrendous treatment. And even today, we hear of people who are kidnapped or people who are promised to the parent who's, again, in abject poverty, saying, oh, if your child comes with us, we'll make sure they get a good job. They'll send you back wages. We'll give them opportunities. And meanwhile, they're tricked into believing that that is the case. And this person is enslaved and they're involved in trafficking them as prostitutes. All around the world, boys and girls, adolescent girls are held against their will in all sorts of sex trafficking enterprises. It's so widely practiced, it's hard to imagine, but it's true. 
And another example, of course, is the dehumanizing utilitarianism. It occurs when governments seek to control the population rate by mandating that only families are allowed to have one child. That's it. One child is all you can have. And you will have severe penalties if you have more than one child. So what happens? The effect of a policy like that in cultures in which that is put in place is that the culture predominantly wants a male child. If you only have one, well, I'd rather have a man. And so that means there are sex selection abortions that go on, which people will eradicate all female babies even before they're born. This is where we go with pragmatism if that is the mindset that guides our view of other people. There's a third one real quickly I want to touch on, and that, of course, many of us are familiar with, is evolutionary view of human people, of human beings, excuse me. It's Charles Darwin, of course, comes up with his theory of evolution. He's, of course, attempting to try to explain all of reality by saying that the forms of life we see now are not the result of a personal, powerful creator, but it's the result of random mutations that have taken place over billions and billions of years. And so it is Darwin who says it's because of natural selection and the process of all these mutations, this is how we explain what we see around us. This sorts of naturalism insists that human life evolved from lower forms of animal life. Well, that theory was picked up in the early part of the 20th century in the 1930s with a number of German intellectuals in which they sought to now begin to apply the theory of natural selection into the areas of social and political and even economic issues, insisting that only those of superior races should be the ones who survive. And so social Darwinism is the movement that then begins to take place where they promote the idea that only white European people of that particular race, that they are now superior to all others, and therefore they concluded that some ethnic groups, particularly European Jews, had inferior genetics, and therefore they should be eradicated as a race. Six million Jews put to death with that kind of thinking and that kind of philosophy. I would also remind you that the world view of this kind of evolutionary thinking gave the impetus to the eugenics movement. The eugenics movement was one that was propagated by people like Margaret Sanger, who was the founder of Planned Parenthood. If you read her writings, if you find out her participation in this movement, you'll understand that she advocated early on in the 1930s and 40s forced forced sterilizations for members of races that were considered to be inferior. And here we find again one among many examples of man's inhumanity to man. The list could go on and on. I want to move now to a, a more hopeful point, and that is to consider the biblical view of human worth. I want to go back again to the Apostle Paul, and I want to show how his view changed, and how other people's views can be changed in time. These views are not ones locked into place. I want to show you how the gospel began to change the heart of Paul when he was changed by Christ in his thinking and beliefs and practices. Look, if you will, 
back at 2 Corinthians chapter 5 again, I'll remind you that, of course, the gospel makes clear that it is a God, a personal God, who has made the world and that he has crowned every single human with honor. And every person is an image bearer of their divine creator. It is the scriptures that teach that God entered the human race in the person of Jesus Christ. He endured much rejection. He endured much discrimination and opposition from those in the political and religious positions of power in his time. He laid down his life on a cross so that whoever, whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The whoever there is so significant because the whoever is saying that it refers to members of any race, any ethnic group, any gender, any economic status. It doesn't make any difference. Whoever. Jesus did not die for the members of a super race. He did not die for... He died actually for any and every sinner who repents and who trusts in Him alone for full forgiveness and for full favor before God. Now let's get back to Paul. He went from a person who was boasting at one time about his superiority. He went from thinking that he was and those like him were superior over other races and they were priding themselves over their remaining separate from all these people out there that they didn't want anything to do with. Now he has a complete reversal of his outlook. After his conversion, his heart is filled with compassion. His heart is filled with love for people, all sorts of people. People different from him in many and profound ways. How can you explain that? It's because as one who was formerly hating so many people who are different from him, now he is filled with a passionate pursuit of a calling from God to make sure they hear the gospel. And Paul endured all sorts of physical and psychological suffering because he renounced the racism of his childhood. And he devoted his life to gospel ministry among Jews and Gentiles alike. So let's look at his testimony again in chapter 5, 2 Corinthians, verse 16. From now on we recognize no person according to the flesh, or from a worldly point of view. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh. What's he saying? He's saying at one time he viewed Jesus as just some insignificant nobody who came from a part of, of, of uh, Israel that was where sort of people who are countrified and people who have no significance of where they come from in Nazareth. He's just an irre irrelevant person. And yet now, he says, we know Christ thus no longer. And therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away, behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. See, when Paul was made alive spiritually, when his heart was changed by the gospel, the Holy Spirit then begins to work in him, producing in him a new view of the worth and dignity of Jesus Christ first, and then 
of those around him. Prior to being born again, Paul despised Jesus Christ. After he was saved, Paul considered Jesus to be of supreme worth. It's a radical change. And Paul began to see other people through the eyes of Christ. He saw other people as God sees them, sinners loved by God for whom Christ died. My friend, may I remind you of what the gospel celebrates? It celebrates a Savior who humbles himself and leaves behind royal glory, unimaginably wonderful. And he humbles himself to hang out with the needy. He seeks the needy out. Compassionately, he reaches his hands out and touches the untouchables. It is Jesus who with tender words spoke, those, spoke to those who were living in the shadows of shame and bringing them out offers words of hope, forgiveness, and encouragement. It is Jesus who with bold actions elevated the status of women and children. It is Jesus Himself who paid our ransom on the cross and to liberate us from spiritual bondage. And it is Jesus Himself who bestows an immeasurably generous inheritance upon spiritual paupers like you and me who have nothing to commend ourselves to God and yet we receive everything in Christ. It is Jesus who sacrificially in His love, calms all of our striving for acceptance by trying to somehow seek to meet some level of performance and trying to say, well, I have finally done something significant enough to, make a, to be an important or, or valuable person in this world. And Jesus says, no, I have done it all for you. I will freely give you my, my righteousness in exchange for your sin. It is Jesus who freely gives his perfect record of righteousness to us, to those of us who violated his laws. Indeed, it's amazing the more we think of it. This is no wonder then why the gospel is the only way in which we see our hearts motivated, giving us an incentive to do and think and act differently, to join God in, act, in acting and to defend those who cannot defend themselves. Since God has shown us mercy when we were weak, since God has shown us mercy when we were defenseless, when we were spiritually impoverished and enslaved, we are now commissioned by Christ to be His voice for the voiceless, to be empowering, empowering the weak, to be defending those who have no one to protect them and no one to provide for them. I love the song that the Gettys have come up here with that I've sung a number of times, maybe you've sung it too, my worth is not in what I own. Not in the strength of flesh and bone, but in the costly wounds of love at the cross. My worth is not in skill or name, in win or lose, in pride or shame, but in the blood of Christ that flowed at the cross. The song goes on to say, I will not boast in wealth or might or human wisdom's fleeting light. I will boast in knowing Christ at the cross. And two wonders here that I confess my worth and my unworthiness. My value fixed, my ransom paid at the cross. My friend, it's only at the cross where we find 
a heart's desire, motivation to begin to join Jesus in showing compassion to all sorts of people around us. People who, no matter what their intelligence, no matter what their race, no matter what their appearance, their abilities, or their economic status. Listen to this verse from Proverbs 31, verses 8 and 9. Proverbs 31, verse 8 and 9. Open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and the needy. Psalm 140, verse 12 says, The Lord will maintain the cause of the afflicted, and He will maintain justice for the poor. I'm glad to say that there have been a number of Christ followers who have taken these things to heart down through the years. They have taken a stand for the weak, for the lowly, for the enslaved. I commend to you the reading of the book about any biography about William Wilberforce, who in the early 19th century, with a small band of other men in the British Parliament, began to become educated about the inhumane conditions that were taking place in transporting enslaved Africans from the coast, the western coast of Africa, over into the Caribbean. And when these few members of Parliament began to read the accounts of people who were now getting first-hand testimony of what exactly those conditions were like, the kind of sickness that was spread among all of these people on the lower levels of these ships, the oppressive heat. They were all chained. They could not move around. They were, uh, the, descript- the, 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 the conditions were indescribably horrendous. It was squalor that they were sitting in, their own excrement, their own vomit. It was just unbelievable to think that this was occurring in the early 1800s. And they began to raise their collective voices on behalf of the voiceless. A small number of them, and yet they called for the prohibition of such barbarian practices. It didn't happen quickly. It took 20 years for them to continually push this one particular prohibition into the lawmakers' uh, attention. And finally, in 1807, the vote came, and the House of Commons voted to abolish the Atlantic slave trade. A handful of people, a handful of people began to challenge these pragmatic assumptions that had elevated, and then they began to elevate the dignity of those who had become viewed at one point as only living tools to be used and then thrown away. There have been others who have stood up and who have shown us what it means to be courageous, to speak for those who have no voice, Martin Luther King Jr. led powerful peace marches, peaceful marches. He delivered many speeches, obviously, to advance civil rights. It's just two weeks ago I heard about another organization, the International Justice Mission. I've never heard about them. I didn't know what they were doing, but wow, are they doing wonderful work. They are focused specifically on seeking to, to bring change for people who are enslaved around the world. And they estimate that there are 40 million people who are enslaved around the world. That number is mind-boggling. 40 million in today's world. And they, as followers of Jesus, are involved in actually rescuing victims 
and then they seek to restore those survivors into some sort of life outside of that kind of dependency and abuse, and then they seek to restrain these criminals and to actually bring about charges against them, and then they try to repair the justice system around the world, getting people to enforce the laws and create better laws to protect people. That's one means that people are trying to make a difference. But Jesus calls us to join him. It can come in many different ways. Join him in loving our neighbor as ourselves. How about you and how about me? Has the gospel created within us a compassionate love to serve and encourage and perhaps help those who have special needs around us? Or do we seek to ignore them and seek to engage with them as little as possible? Does your heart beat with compassion? You know, compassion enough to roll up your sleeves, to somehow get involved and to try to offer care for orphans, for the fatherless, for widows? Does your heart understand and care about those who are involved in the process of seeking to help the elderly, maybe their elderly relatives, as they seek to care for them? Do we view such people and do they view their own efforts as being that which is offered to the least of these in the name of Christ? Do our hearts well up with courage to be a voice, a voice to those who are bullied? Maybe you're a student in school. You say, what difference can I make? You can be a person who's you see something being done that's wrong, you stand up for what's right. We are called to be those who, of course, want to reject, and I urge again and again to renounce all forms of use of pornography. The reason I bring up pornography at the conclusion of this message is because, as I read an article this week, and it can't provide exact figures, but the article is trying to point out that at least a third, one, one particular anti-trafficking organization has come up with, at least a third of the victims who are trafficked for sex are involved and used in the production of pornography. What does that say? It says that even though the people involved in pornography look like they may have been enjoying it, most are not. And there being a consumer, if we are consumers of pornography, Ultimately, we are harming women, we are harming children, because the porn industry abuses women, it abuses children by fueling prostitution, whether it is literal, physical prostitution, or whether it's virtual prostitution online, and sex slavery. Again, the article by Andrew Naselli, I would, in, I would encourage you to look it up online, N-A-S-E-L-L-I, he goes on to say, every time a man or woman views pornography online, we are contributing to a cycle of sex slavery from the privacy of our own phones or computers. And since pornography fuels the sex slavery industry, indulging in pornography to any degree is participating in some form of sex slavery. We are called to be a people who in our compassion Offer ourselves as a living sacrifice to God, living holy lives unto Him. Why? Because Christ has so graciously dealt with us. May I just suggest to you, perhaps some of these things are a little bit challenging for some of us to actually live out. How about start with this? How about smile and speak to the people you pass by? 
because they are people created in the image of God and they have dignity and worth. They are loved by God. We can love them too. Let's pray. Our Father, we look to you this day as we have a heavy heart and have looked at some very ugly and very um, upsetting and alarming things that go on, Lord, in the various forms of man's inhumanity to man. But Lord, you are our hope. You are our deliverer. You are the one who has set us free from our own enslavement in sin. How we thank you that you are our liberator. Not so that we might live a life of self-indulgence, not a life of being filled up with selfish pride, looking at other people with indifference, with condemning attitudes of superiority, but Lord, filling us with a sense of love and compassion and a sense of humble desire to serve to help, to be a voice for those who have no voice. Lord, I pray that you would use us in whatever sphere of influence that we have to be used as your agents to bring about a change, to join you in seeking to be that, uh, involved in being people who show worth, who, evaluate, who affirm the value of our fellow human beings. And may we do so, Lord, pointing them to Christ in which Christ can change their hearts and give them the riches of eternal life through him and him alone. We pray in his name. Amen.